It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, September the 23rd, 2018. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time over at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and uh, you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Hope everybody's having a great weekend. Uh, final week of the baseball season upon us. So some garbage time coming up for the Mets, who have the right up there since July 1st. And I know everybody's been laughing about it because, you know, you could slice a season and rationalize it. But Mets have been uh, the best team in the NL East for the most part since July 1st. And that's a, a pretty large sample size during a time where they were selling off some of their veterans in transition with some young players. Jeff McNeil, another uh, impressive weekend. And uh, now it'll be about David Wright, it'll be about the final days, it'll be about next year, and part of what we're going to, and of course Jacob deGrom and the Cy Young, part of what I'm going to do today is actually take a look at the manager, and I know that this has been a topic that we've discussed here before, and the manager since this podcast started, especially with my feelings and thoughts on Terry Collins has been a big discussion, but we're going to get to know maybe Mickey Calloway a little bit and joining me and you'll hear that conversation in just a little bit is David Lorla uh, of Fangraphs and David had a sit down and he does great work over at Fangraphs he does these sit downs with managers and I gotta tell you if you go over to Fangraphs and I tweeted it out and you read the piece and you read some of the comments from Calloway it was by far I think the most candid conversation in terms of information that Callaway's given, maybe all season. And, you know, I mentioned this, and he really didn't get into depth about it again. And I'm curious if Lorla actually dived into it. But Callaway mentioned the culture and how he felt he didn't actively try to change things sooner. And maybe that was some of the issues that he experienced early on in the spring when they. We're playing historically bad, but, you know, I'd like to hear what exactly he's done differently with the culture. But if you get into this piece over at Fangraphs, he talks about his relationship with Dave Island and, and, and the challenges of being a former pitching coach and, and how, to his credit, he's actually been hands-off with the staff and made Island work more on that. Uh, you know, he talked about communicating and connecting with his players and he even admits that at times it's a bit of a challenge when he's communicating with the media as he hugs a line between giving information and being honest and trying to put a message out for the organization versus throwing his players under the bus or giving away too much of what goes on inside the clubhouse. And I think that's a very fine line. And, and I always say it that managing the media, an important stakeholder, the mouthpiece and the window to what the fans' opinion is, is so important. And I don't think Callaway's done a really good job of that this year. And he essentially admits that he struggles a little bit about that. Uh, he talks about analytics and how he uses analytics 
uh, to make some decisions. And even, and this is really, uh, what's really, really interesting was that uh, he admitted that their trip to Boston last week, how he and Gary DeSarcina, his bench coach, uh, it was almost like a vacation after having to manage National League Baseball uh, the whole season. I've never really heard a manager, I mean, this has been talked about and and maybe bantered about, but never a manager put it in that kind of, um, you know, that candor, I guess, is what I would say. So uh, I think you get a little bit of an idea of who Callaway is. I think if you don't have confidence that he knows what he's doing, I think if you read this, you'll feel better about it. Uh, I think... The way I would put Callaway as I look at his first season, here's a guy who took over Terry Collins' team. And I think that Terry Collins uh, was a different baseball guy. Uh, I think right now, Callaway, what he's trying to do is get players to use information, uh, prepare. Uh, you know, I think there's at least an attempt to hold players more accountable, uh, try to develop and improve players. I think if you've seen Edmed Rosario, the development he's done over the, the course of the season, you could see that that's. Uh, been a focus. Uh, you could see the pitchers, like the pitchers, and that's credit to Dave Island, of course, and he and he does credit Dave Island in the piece. You could see what he's done. Now I know what you're saying is, why are these guys not developed uh, when they come to the big leagues? And that's a fair point, and I think that's something that the organization admitted was a failure last year when they turned over uh, a number of what uh, was going on in the minor leagues and the staff and the managers and things like that. So. Uh, I, I think they understand that that's a, a, an obvious area of, of need. But listen, today's day and age when you have players coming up when they're 20, 21, 22, uh, you know, they're rushing players to the big leagues, you know, arbitration clocks and the pressure to win. Maybe part of the job going forward will be developing players at the big league level. I think the thing that Callaway is going to struggle with, and it's always an issue in this town, is that number one, if he's not going to communicate or he's going to feel uncomfortable or clumsy communicating with the media, especially when he's trying to hug the line between being a company guy, protecting his players, and giving the, the beat writers specifically and the, the viewers of SNY something to chew on, he's got to do a better job with it. Because if, if he does it in a way which makes him sound clueless or inarticulate, that's what the radio heads, the talking heads will say. That's what the fans will scream. The beat writers will jump on. You know, nobody, nobody's done a deep dive on Callaway like Laurel has done in this piece this year. I haven't seen it. Maybe I'm missing something. Tweet at me. Let me know. I, di- I spoke to someone this weekend who's uh, on the beat and, uh, you know, asked them their thoughts on Callaway. And they said, listen, Mickey's got better conversations in private than in public. And that's fair. And maybe he's more comfortable in that in that venue. Well, then he's got to do a little bit more of what I think Terry Collins did, which I know Collins did a great job in um, in providing information and, and speaking with the beat writers in a way which made them feel comfortable and felt like they were walking away getting something. And I really believe personally that that allowed him to be protected uh, for a long time where he didn't really get negative coverage. I think Callaway has gotten more negative coverage his first season than Collins did maybe his, enti- his entire Mets tenure. My main concern is that if if Callaway is an analytical guy, it's clear from his piece he's an analytical guy, and he's a well-read guy, and he's a guy who believes in culture and communication, and he's nuanced enough where he's a new-age baseball guy. If he's not able to articulate that or or give someone in the media the opportunity to see more into the window of who he is, I don't know if 
it will go well for him if the team doesn't win. Now, if the team wins, and if it's a good process, you hope that the outcome is good. But it takes talent, too, and the Mets still need uh, an upgrade in that, despite the fact that I don't think they're as bad as everyone's made them out to be this year. Uh, I don't think the media is erudite enough. I don't think that the uh, the I mean, talk radio for sure is not going to be able to wrap their heads around them. If I gave this article to someone on a uh, talk radio show in this town, I don't think they'd really understand how to talk about it. I hate to say it. A lot of fans would look at this and you know scratch their head. I mean, most people, unfortunately, are not living in the fandom of the higher-level baseball conversation, especially the kind of conversation that you get over at sites like Fangraphs. And that's not me trying to talk down to the fans. Uh, we I appreciate their passion, but I, I also think that they are not consistently fed higher-level baseball analysis in this town. And that hurts. And if a guy like Callaway is going to live in that world, um, he's going to have to figure a way how to connect. Because I think if he doesn't, when times get bad for his team, that's when I think the Sharks are going to circle the, the boat in the water. And unfortunately, ownership, any ownership in any town, they listen to talk radio. Uh, they don't like when their brand is being beaten up um you know it doesn't necessarily always lead to the team having impacted when the fans are are upset but you certainly don't want in new york that kind of distraction and he talks about all the eyeballs on you and the pressure and things like that he needs to do a better job of that that's my big takeaway and if he can do that i i really think that you may have yourself a decent manager here he's very even keeled i know he he blew up the other day and and that'll happen but, you know, you don't need Billy Martin. You don't need Lou Pinella. You don't need that necessarily to get a team fired up. You need a team that's prepared. You need players that know what their role is within the concept and the scope of what uh, they're expected to do on a day-in and day-out basis. That's chemistry. It's not liking each other. I've, I talked about this before. Um, and, and can Callaway get the most out of uh, the players? I think I think he certainly has for the most part. Uh, I think guys have overperformed in some cases. Not the veterans, and I think that's what's hurt. The Jay Bruce's, the Todd Frazier's. And, and to me, that's a decision that the team has to make at the end of the season. And, um, and you know, what are the right veterans that this team needs? Because if Rosario and McNeil continue to impress and improve, and you get what you're going to get out of the big four and the rotation, and, and maybe you get an arm or two out of this bullpen and you, and you sprinkle in some veteran acquisitions, you don't have a bad team. I'm sorry. You don't have a bad team. So, anyway, uh, interesting stuff. I, I think Callaway is certainly someone that has not had a great year. I'm not saying it's an F. I'm not giving him an A. I think he's gotten a C. And um, I, I think he deserves a longer look. And, you know, personally, I don't think he's done anything to be egregious in the dugout. I'm a guy who has felt the Mets dugout, and, and the manager in there has been a huge weakness for a long time. And um, honestly, I think Mickey Calloway is an upgrade. And I know you guys are probably laughing, some of you, because I know I get tweeted at a lot of Collins fans, but Mickey Calloway is a better manager than Terry Collins. And, uh, you know, he's working sometimes in some cases with with a little less uh, in some cases because, um, you know, he's had to to work on developing these pitchers that have really stagnated under the prior regime. And in a lot of ways, I think some of his conversations in a baseball vernacular 
are almost like at a higher level like Phil Jackson uh, was as a coach for the Chicago Bulls. He's more Phil Jackson than he is Pat Riley. And sometimes that doesn't work well because, let's face it, your audience may not quite understand or may not be that mindful or that deep when it comes to certain things. So anyway, uh, let's hear what David Lorla has to say. Let's take a quick break. We'll hear from him when you come back as uh, we trudge on to the final week of the baseball season. We'll be back with more Talking Mets podcast right after this. You know what? I think you have to consider everything. You know, you're going to get tons and tons of information yeah. going into a series. And if it makes sense and you think that it's going to help you win a game, then you have to use it. You know, obviously we are baseball guys and we know what we know from the baseball yeah. side. And what I've noticed is if you start paying attention to those analytical numbers, it starts to align with what you believe is a baseball guy. And that aligns a lot of the time. Now, when you get some kind of, you know, number that's kind of off the charts, that's where you have to second guess what you know as a baseball guy. Okay, now this number says this. Why do I not think that's right? Yeah. And then you have to make an educated decision on, okay, do I need to lean a little bit more on this analytical number? Or do I go with my, you know, baseball, you know, acumen? We're back, and joining me from Fangraphs, uh, David Lorla, and you can check him out on Twitter, at David Lorla QA. David does a bunch of great stuff over at Fangraphs, obviously Q&A, and he's coming on to join us, talk a little bit about the Mets manager, Mickey Calloway. He had a chance to catch up with them, and if you haven't checked it out over at Fangraphs, you should. Uh, a bit of candor from Calloway, something that we really haven't had a chance to get out of him through his first year managing in New York. And David, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for doing this. And here's where I'll kick it off. Going in, I'm not sure how much exposure you had to Mickey Calloway, but did you get a different perspective on Calloway and his, I guess, performance here in New York going at, coming out as you did going in? Because I certainly did. It was a very articulate, different view uh, that Mickey gave to you. Uh, something we haven't really seen here in New York throughout his first season managing the club. Hey, Mike. Uh, first, it's uh, it's great to be on. Um, yeah, Mickey, I've known Mickey a little bit. Um, I work out in the Boston market. I'm at Fenway a lot. So I do a lot of American League stuff, much more than, than NL. Um, so I knew Mickey when Cleveland would come to town. I would, you know, be in Cleveland periodically covering the postseason, a few regular season games. So, sure. I mean, Mickey has always been a very personable uh, individual, a pitching coach, obviously, uh, and very well-spoken. So when he opted to sit down with me to do this, um, yeah, um, it was great. And I think he was fairly forthcoming, maybe more so than he would be with the uh, the Mets beat writers. You know, he's mentioned culture in your piece. And he's talked about it a few times here. And obviously, you up in Boston, uh, his, you know, you saw Tito Francona for a long time. He he's, he learned under uh, Francona. Do you have an idea of what he really means by that? Because he's never really articulated what he means by changing the Mets culture. It's it's someone that one of those things that, especially when you deal with a site like Fangraphs that's so data driven, you really don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Well, I mean, Mickey, I didn't press him on it, but it was pretty 
apparent to me he wasn't going to go into a lot of detail about specifics you know, with culture. But I do know from uh, talking to people in Cleveland, talking to people in their front office the last few years, um, Mickey is far from the only one who talks about culture. Uh, you know, their their GM, you know, assistant GM, um, a lot, they are really, really big on culture. And I think what it is is making the players accountable, but also being free to I, – I think they want – I'm trying to be articulate here. Uh, the Indians front office is very engaging with each other. They love to share ideas. They like to have a good, comfortable working environment, and they like to move that down to the players. Now, when Mickey said in the interview that he wanted his players to be more accountable and do things the way that the organization wants them to, whether they want to or not, maybe that sounds a little bit counter to the letting the players be comfortable and be themselves. But I guess if you have, if you develop a good culture, you know, it's just going to come natural to happen. I, I don't know if I worded Absolutely. that intelligently yeah, no, or not. I, I, no, it, what a lot of it is, and what I, what I was thinking about reading this was that he basically took over Terry Collins' Mets. Yeah, there was changes and they made some minor changes, but here's a team that went to the World Series Usually when they go to the World Series, a manager doesn't get fired for the most part two years later. Uh, so he wasn't really coming into Mickey Calloway's team. He was coming into Terry Collins' team, and he had been there longer than any other Mets manager. So in a lot of ways, it sounds like there was that period, and spring training wasn't enough, where he was almost a spectator within his own team in, in some ways. And he and it sounds like he, he wishes he had been more, uh, maybe I'll use the word assertive early on. Well, well, he did make that pretty pretty clear in the conversation. It's a tough situation coming to a new team, uh, but teams do need change. You know, we've seen in MLB the last few years, teams replace man, winning teams replace managers. You know, I'm in Boston where John Farrell brought the team to the postseason a few years in a row, and he got fired. And uh, this obviously worked out very well with Alex Cora. Uh, I am skeptical that the Red Sox would have been nearly this good had they stood pat because there are times where you realize change needed to be made. I believe change needed to be made in New York. Um, I think Callaway will be there for at least a few years, maybe for a long time. But, uh, you know, changes do still need to be happened. The roster, I think, needs to be redone quite a lot. Uh, the front office obviously is changing. There will be a new GM there next year. Um, you know, ownership is something that I probably don't need to start getting into. <laughs> Absolutely. And you bring up an interesting point because there is still a large segment of the fan base, especially as we get deeper into front offices running clubs that really discount. You've done a lot of these manager interviews. I mean, if you go to this piece, you can go to the top and you can see, you know, you've ranged from, Guys like uh, A.J. Hinch and John Gibbons and, and, and guys like that. And, and you're basically saying, hey, you know, we may be in a lot of ways discounted. We've gone to the other extreme, the importance of the field manager. You just brought up Alex Cora and what's been going on over there. Um, has your perspective changed talking to these different uh, field managers and what they bring and, and what's been going on with their clubs? Well, I don't know that my perspective has changed. I've been doing manager interviews, um, you know, for, for a number of years. 
Um, I think that I think that the relationship between front offices and managers has been evolving, as I'm sure you've seen as well. And that is where I think that who the Mets bring in uh, in the front office is, is going to be vital to their future. And part of that is with how he will get along with, uh, I assume it will be a he, not necessarily, uh, with, uh, with Mickey Callaway. Uh, you know, Ben Charrington, for instance, has been mentioned as a possibility if he would want that job. Um, they know each other, and Ben is, is a very forward-thinking person. I, I think that would be ideal. I've heard a few other names that strike me as less positive because they're more old-school baseball people, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but I think a team like the Mets needs a younger, more progressive GM um, you know, Charrington isn't, you know, a kid per se, but he is younger and smarter, you know, like a Jason McLeod in the Cubs, you know, a Jared Porter or Ami Sade with the Diamondbacks, people like that. Or maybe if they could get one of the two-headed monster that runs, you know, the tremendously uh, creative uh, Tampa Bay Rays, that would be, let's see, Eric Neander and I believe Heim Bloom is the other. Uh, people, one of those people, I think, would be great, you know, for the Mets organization. It di- it didn't sound like he's had, and this is one of the things that even when things got really bad in June, they've had an odd year, eleven and one start, best record in the NL East since July first, and then they had this Orioles type June, maybe a large part of May, and um, you know, it, it, it's 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 been an odd year for him, but it it does not seem like the players have necessarily, and we haven't heard anything here, uh, gone out and not played for him, uh, complained about him. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's issues and things that are staying in-house, and maybe that's a testament to him, but the players don't seem to have an issue with him. The biggest issue is the media and the fans, and, and obviously those are stakeholders, but ultimately if the players are going to play for you, the, those other two don't really matter. Well, yeah, I mean, the fans and media are, you know, that the New York dynamic, as uh, Callaway touches on quite a lot, it, it's very big. It's a different animal. Uh, it's very, very different than Cleveland, for instance. Um, you know, the fans, though, it's, well, there's the old saying about if players listen, or no, if managers listen too much to the fans, you know, they're going to become fans. Uh you know, and, and that's true. I think Mickey has to pay attention to what fans are thinking. He has to pay attention to certainly what the media is writing. Does that mean it should sway what he does in the manager's chair? You know, uh, probably not. You know, he needs to do what his front office wants him to do, what he feels he needs to do to field a, a winning team, a team that's improving. Uh, and the rest is really just noise. Very fair point. I have David Lorelo with me. Fangraphs wrote a great uh, manager's perspective on Mickey Calloway over at Fangraphs. Check it out. He's done a bunch of them that are really interesting. One other thing that you got, that he got into with you that I thought was – it was an obvious thing that really hasn't been looked at was that here he is. He's a former pitching coach and one of the best in the game, had a great staff in Cleveland, brings in Dave Island, who was a successful pitching coach in his own right in this town as well. And he talked about having to be hands-off. And, and I think you could appreciate that in any job when you get a promotion like Callaway. And 
the person reporting to you does the job that you had before. It's so easy to want to do that job and your own and jump on that or step on that individual. And I think, A, it was smart for the Mets to bring in someone of uh, Island's level because it's a lot harder to do it. Uh, and B, give Callaway credit for being self-aware enough and, and putting his ego aside because uh, I'm assuming there might be some differences. We don't know. Maybe you know between the two and their philosophies and what have you. So I thought that was a nice little nugget that came out of uh, the piece. Well, I think it's something that any coach has to do when he goes into the manager's role. And I think most do a pretty good job of it. Um, John Farrell did that in Boston, of course. Um, as, as you know, pitching coaches tend to not become managers um, quite as often. It's just the former catcher thing. It, it, although that's changed a little bit in recent years, you know, with more infielders and I guess uh, Gabe Kapler is an outfielder. But, uh called the relationship that Island and Callaway had uh, before Island was hired, but a manager is always going to sign off, at least almost always sign off on his on the coaching hires. I do know that Island is a little bit more old school than Callaway. You know, the Indians were very analytically driven in the front office, so Callaway certainly would be very aware of things like spin spin rate, spin access, uh, sequencing, how a lot of these things directly impact a, a pitcher's performance, which is not to say that Island is not, but it's possible that he wasn't quite as in tune to that, um, you know, in, in his previous jobs. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he, um, you know, he talks also about, you know, he mentioned the media earlier. He, he talked about how he wishes he – and this has been, a, I think, one of the reasons why he gets a bad rap to a certain degree with the media and the fans, his post-game press conferences. He talked about how his wording, how he kind of worded certain things with the media. And you forget, and I always say, it's almost like you have to be part salesman. You have to manage your stakeholders, media guys that you cover every day. You need to give them something. You almost have to manage the fan base to a certain degree because, again, like you said, if you listen to them, you'll be unemployed, but they still can make your, your job really hard because they and the media are almost connected. And he mentioned specifically about hitting the cutoff man and how it sounded, how he was criticizing Conforto. And that's one thing I think the fans – and I think Mickey's smart. He's trying to make sure he protects his players, but not to the point where he's excusing them. But I think here in New York, the culture is such, and I'm sure it is a certain degree in Boston, the fans want meat. They want blood. And when somebody screws up, especially an egregious type of screw up, they want to be thrown to the wolves maybe as a way to improve, which you and I know is not always the case. So I thought it was interesting. He's really thought long and hard about different secondary, tertiary aspects of the job that uh, a lot of times you don't really hear you know, managers talk about. You got that, that out of him, and I thought that was really interesting. Well, there's a tremendous uh, difference in dynamic, Mike, to the way that managers uh, address the media. Um, Mickey is certainly more careful than he would have been speaking last year as a pitching coach in Cleveland. Uh, John Farrell was a deadly boring uh, pre- and post-game interview in, in Boston when he was, was here. Um, Alex Cora is different. He actually has admitted a few times this year that he has let the game speed up on him in in a certain instances. That is very rare for a manager to be to be that forthcoming. Um, you know, you have a Bobby Valentine who who like to give answers like manager's decision. 
you know, he just very bluntly said, you know, it was on me. I did what I wanted to do. You don't need to know the reasons. You know, Buck Showalter did perhaps the most compelling manager's perspective interview I did this year. Uh, saying, saying, he basically threw Chris Davis under the bus without naming him, talking about, about contracts. That is the type of thing that Mickey would certainly uh, not do, in part because he doesn't have the cachet of a Buck Showalter, and in part because it's not his personality. You know, and the players are different. What you just talked about, and you mentioned Buck, an old-school manager guy who's been around you know, 30 years here, that used to be the media, especially you know in the days here with Pat Riley. I know a different sport. He would use the media all the time as a way to motivate and to get you know maybe not under, under his player's skin, but to send a point. You got to be a lot more careful with that now, maybe because of the amount of media. But you keep hearing that today's players don't like that. They don't want that. They want a different relationship. And you know you mentioned Mickey and Buck. You could not have maybe two. I'm, I'm sure you came out in your interviews. You couldn't have two different types of communicators and types of people in those two individuals. Well, right. And what Buck does can work, and it has worked. He, the team he's managing now is, of course, uh, you know, miserably bad, and I'm sure he will be gone at the end of the year. Um, I'm sure he wants to be gone at, at the end of the year. Um, he is an old-school manager, and old-school managers really are disappearing. Mike Sosha will be gone. He's an old-school manager. John Gibbons is old-school. He will be gone. We have a lot of young progressive managers in baseball. It's just the evolution of the game, and Mickey fits into that very well. Last thing, I do want to get your thoughts on the, I know it's not part of the piece, the, the Cy Young race, because, uh, you know, I, I'm curious, and that's something that obviously in the lost season, New Yorkers will be talking about. But you mentioned the Cora talking about the game speeding up on him, and that's certainly something that could happen to any manager. And, uh, you know, Mickey had the, the lineup card fiasco, but he also said, and he brought up uh, Gary DeSarcina, a guy who was in Boston, how when they went to Boston about a week ago, they looked at it as a day off for them because of the DH. And, Sometimes you look at when that happens, you go, well, how complicated? you got double switches, and you got bullpen management, bullpen management. How complicated is the NL game? But it sounds like maybe it is a little bit more, and obviously it goes into the relievers and the bullpen. But he- hearing him say that, I've never heard a manager really say, you know, well, it's like almost like a day off going to the American League. I found that interesting as well. I did. Uh, I have heard that said, but not maybe not quite as – strongly or definitively, as Mickey put it. Um, it. It is a different game. I, uh, you know, I follow American League Baseball mostly. Um, I think I prefer the non-DH. I like the occasional pitchers hitting. Uh, you know, but going to DeGrom, you mentioned, uh, DeGrom, to me, should win the Cy Young Award. Um, uh, maybe three weeks ago, I wouldn't necessarily have thought that, but uh, Scherzer and uh, and Nola have both. I don't know. It's slump is the word. They haven't been quite as good. And Degrom has stayed. Uh, he, you know, he's continued to be brilliant. You know, one loss record, of course, can mostly be thrown out. I think all things being equal, you take the 20 game winner over the 10 game winner if the other stats are comparable. But in this case, uh, DeGrom is just flat out the best pitcher in baseball this year. I don't think many people would argue that. No, his numbers are – here's where I I didn't think I was with you in the camp about a month ago. I'm like, look, 
He's not going to win 20 games. He may have a losing record. Nola may be pitching in big games down the stretch, and maybe the Phillies at that time could win the division. When you look at him and compare him to Scherzer, it's, you know, he's better, but it's very minuscule. You have to wonder, I'll throw this out at you, if Scherzer was having for the first time in his career this kind of year, similar to Grom, I would wonder if the wins would make a difference. Both are bad teams right now. But because he's done it before, maybe the voters are like, well, he's already done it. DeGrom is almost like the new shiny object. Again, the numbers are better, but look at Scherzer. It's not so much different where you could say, yeah, that guy is much better than Max Scherzer when you break it down over and over and over again. I, I just thought of that. I thought that was something interesting. Yeah, um, it, it is an interesting idea. Uh, and here's another idea that uh, at least I think is interesting is people have tended to look at wins when they look at Cy Young Award winners. Something that I noticed this summer is losses, that if you go down the list of Cy Young Award winners in the two leagues over the last 10 or 15 years, what you're going to see is very low loss totals. Uh, You're going to see a lot of fours, fives, sixes, and sevens that go along with the wins. And I think that... Uh, consciously or maybe subconsciously, voters are recognizing that if you if a pitcher does not have many L's, that he, I think that really helps his case. He is keeping his team, in, you know, in with a chance to win a game. So it, it's something to look at. Uh, Degrom, I believe, has is it nine losses now? Yeah, it's nine and nine, maybe. For, yeah, it is very high right, for a Cy Young Award winner. It, it no. is actually Bad high time. for a Cy. You know, the days of the pitchers winning the Cy with records like 23 and 15, you know, are 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 long gone. You know, it's a different era. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Uh, it's an, been the Mets in general. You know, to wrap up the Mickey Callaway thing, have been an odd. Think of it from a statistical standpoint. It's been one of the more odd statistical years. Look at some of the home and road splits, city field versus road with players, the Grom's dominance and his record, 11-1, and one, and then 62 Mets bad. It's weird. It's, it's almost like that statistical extremes on the, on the polar opposites are being played out in one baseball season for one team. It's very, very strange. Well, we had an article up at Fangraphs a few weeks ago. I believe Jeff Sullivan wrote it. Uh, about the very weird park effect at, at City Field, particularly yeah, that with batting average piece. on balls in play, uh, which is uh, you know, it's a unique ballpark there. Um, and I don't really know that it can be explained well. You know, Jeff gave it a shot. Mickey actually brought that up to me when I saw him. Um, I think it was the day, might have been the day before we did, did the interview. He came up and said, hey, have you noticed you know, how weird city field is with, with, with Babbitt. It, it, it's well, you know, and it's amazing. And, and to me, they move the fences in. Um, yeah. There's some odd wind patterns. Shea stadium always was a bad place to play in this early spring and then fall, like home runs would die. I mean, Mike Piazza was talking about it recently with his home run in the world. You know, it was not his home run, but it's the last out in the world series it starts to wonder, you know, is, with a situation like that, City Field could almost be like a test tube for, okay, is it the fences? Is it the background? Is it the fact that the team's not in the race and maybe the juice isn't there? There's a lot of non-statistical anecdotal things that come into play because unless they're using a humidor that you and I don't know about, the fences shouldn't have an impact on batting average and balls in play. I mean, you would think, right? Well, the- I mean, that's the way I look at it. 
Well, the fences wouldn't wouldn't have a huge impact. The way I have read that or heard that the way the balls are stored at City Field may impact, uh, you know how you know the exit velocity. Um, I do know that the Mets outfield defense has not been been stellar. Uh, you know, maybe that's positioning, maybe that's just the overall talent, but that will certainly impact uh, Babbitt a, a fair amount. You know, Lagares, I know, was out for, for, for most of the year. Absolutely. So uh, one last thing. So are you ready for Yankees Red Sox again? I know this is a Mets-centric podcast, but uh, obviously we're in New York. Um, I don't personally think the Yankees are going to win the playing game, but uh, that's maybe a little bit biased. Um, it would be interesting to see the two teams. Um, you know, the Yankees have played well against the Red Sox this year. I also got a kick out of uh, Yankees fans getting mad about the, the home runs at Yankee Stadium earlier this week. So, yeah, we'll, we'll wrap it up with this. You're a Boston guy, Red Sox guy. Are you ready for Yankees, Red Sox? And what are your feelings on the Sox uh, as we head into the playoffs in about a week or 10 days? Well, I'm a Boston guy, uh, uh, Red Sox guy to the extent that, that I currently live in Boston. I did not did not grow up here. But, uh, I mean, I think baseball fans around the country have a love-hate relationship with Red Sox Yankee matchups in, in the postseason. I personally would rather not see it. I would rather see Oakland come here. But uh, yeah, it's a coin it's a coin flip as to who will win the play-in game. Certainly, and as smart uh, baseball people know, the postseason is basically a coin flip as well. If you're good enough to get into October, you're good enough to win a five or seven game series. So uh, time time will tell. Um, I will say Absolutely. that if I were a betting man, that I would bet on uh, the Houston Astros to win the World Series again. Yeah, who would have thunk that one, right? So a few years ago when they were losing 110 games. So anyway, David, you've been great. Uh, your pieces are great. If anyone hasn't checked them out on Fangrass, the Mickey Calloway one is great, but there's some other interesting things. You have a knack of getting some real uh, uh, deep dives from these individuals who we hear all the time and really don't give uh, uh, very much. So keep it up. Let's do this again. And I appreciate you being generous with your time on a weekend, my friend. Thanks again. Fantastic, Mike. Thanks. And that's David Lorla, uh, Fangraphs. Interesting stuff. I hope you enjoyed it. Get a chance to look at Mickey Calloway. You know, maybe we'll try to do more into that city field situation. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When I return, wrap up, final thoughts, and uh, we'll talk about the week ahead. And what to expect from the podcast. you got Wright's final game, et cetera, et cetera. We'll be back with more Talking Mets right after this. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today.
All right, final thoughts. Hope everybody enjoyed that. I thought David Lorela gave us something to think about. At least a different window into Mickey Calloway. And uh, I saw even some people in the comments section over at Fangraphs mention how, well, when the ship was sinking in June, it was his job to write it. And yeah, he's the manager, but I look at it this way. If Jay Bruce isn't going to hit and Todd Frazier isn't going to hit, and Conforto's not going to hit, and we know what deep funk Rosario was in. You didn't have McNeil at second. All right, you had Cabrera, so he was the one guy that, that was hitting. First base was a sieve with Gonzalez. Behind the plate with Lobatone and guys like that, was an, almost like the pitcher, it was an automatic out. So essentially, you'd go into games with Brandon Nimmo, who was hot for a little bit, and, you know, Estrubal Cabrera. And at some point, Estrubal Cabrera was really the only one hitting. You had the starting pitching doing as as good as possible, but Syndergaard was out, so they were a little short. And we all know what was going on in the bullpen. And everybody talks about Jerry's Familia. Oh, Metrotrade Familia. He contributed with some blown saves. It was just a perfect storm of bad stuff happening in June, and that's where they're 5-21, and and that's where this season ended. Now, do I think they could have competed even with a better June uh, with the Braves? I don't know. Uh, things change a lot, and who knows if McNeil gets brought up. And and I think McNeil's been a, a, the way the top of the order has been in the last six weeks with the emergence of Rosario as a different player, bringing speed to the top of the lineup, and McNeil. And um, you know, I think that 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 that's changed a lot. And of course, Conforto now starting to play like the elite offensive hitter that they really need. And that guy that I talked about in the prior podcast when. We said, you know, who's going to take the mantle from David Wright? That's the guy. You know, that's the guy that's most logical. We'll see if he does that. So I think that Mickey Calloway, again, like I said right before the break, deserves probably a C. I don't think he's a bad manager. And I think it's a C because he's learning on the job in a tough market. He's made some mistakes. Everyone focuses on the lineup card scenario. But to me, he seems from this article very intelligent, very well read. There is a plan. There is a process. I don't think he's too beholden to analytics. Uh, I, I do sometimes think his bullpen management's a little odd, but there's not a manager in baseball that I could say that about. And at least it seems like there's a thought process. I felt with Terry Collins and Dan Worthen there was no thought process. It was all reactionary, and they were almost spectators in their own job. I, I really did. I just felt like they just, you know, they sat there and they talked to the media and well, it's the Veterans Club, and they basically were just there to make sure nobody got out of, out of hand. And and to me, that you know that's not managing. And if you have new ways of looking at things, you need managers and pitching coaches that could articulate that and break it down for these players. And I don't think those guys could do that. And I think that's a big detriment that this team uh, had. And and I think it held them back. And I think you know they're in a better place now. With Island and with Callaway. That's my opinion. And, and I think, you know, hopefully that'll continue. So, you know, where are we going to go with the podcast? Well, uh, a couple of things. First, David Wright's final game. Uh, next Sunday, uh, and I'm thinking it's going to be either 7.30 or 8 o'clock. So stay tuned. Live podcast call and show. So uh, stay tuned for that. I'm hoping to have that. And there is a strong possibility with DeGrom's final start being... Wednesday against the Braves that will do something along the lines of a DeGrom Cy Young podcast. And once those two podcasts are done, then we'll wrap up. We'll probably take a break. 
I know the Mets will be searching for a GM, so there's a there's a there's a chance that there'll be a couple of podcasts in October that we normally wouldn't have as this process continues. Um, you know, we've had our take on that with Rich Mancuso and New York Sports Day and the reports that it, you know Gary LaRock is going to be a, a, the next GM. So you know, stay tuned for that. We'll see if that you know is what transpires. And I've also heard that there's possibility that. There's going to be a baseball uh, vice president of baseball operations. So I've heard, I've talked to some people and I've heard a bunch of different things and that's a, a conversation for a different time. Right now it's about wrapping up the season, you know, honoring David Wright and, you know, seeing where this DeGrom stuff goes and, and really figuring out what the Mets have here, which I think they have something to play with for next year. And I think they have something that can make next year a fun season. They have some real fun players on this team. So Anyway, we're out of time. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. I want to thank David Lorla of Fangraphs at David Lorla QA is the Twitter handle. Of course, you can check me out all the time at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, whatever podcasting service you desire. Of course, if you could leave me a review on iTunes, that'd be much appreciated. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you with more Talking Mets podcast next week. Take care.